Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Samantha Bond, uh, commonly known as Sam. Now, when I'm not doing my day job working alongside Maggie Smith, Piers Brosnan, or even the gorgeously hirsute Burt Reynolds, God rest his soul, I'm an ambassador for a wonderful organisation called Acting for Others. And together, we've paired up some of the UK's brightest stars of stage and screen for <sighs> intimate conversations about, well, their passion for theatre, trials and triumphs, loves and losses, and a whole lot more. I said the theatre is a temple and you should be ashamed of yourself for desecrating it. Me as a black woman was not getting any of that work or any of that practice. And now I'm in this position, post-50, I'm ageing in. Ben Whishaw, the hardest man to make corpse on stage. I only got him once. Dear listener, there's a very good reason why we're doing this. We think that theatre is something to truly treasure and it must be protected at all costs, starting with the people working in it. And this is where Acting for Others comes in because we provide both financial and emotional support to production crew, front of house, actors, set designers, in fact, anyone working in UK theatre in times of need through a network of 14-member charities. And every penny this podcast generates will go to those charities. In fact, you listening now is helping, so thank you. And if you'd like to go further and make a donation, listen to the end for details or click the link in the show notes. Now sit back and relax. It's David Tennant and Papa Essiedu in conversation in March 2022. Enjoy. Hi, Papa. Hello. Oh, wow, my voice is way louder than I thought it would be. How are we? Very good. Can anyone hear me? Yeah, Hello. yeah, yeah. David, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, sweet, man. Long time no see. I know. We on a big delay here. Oh, really? Is that me? I'm very impressed by um, the audio recording suite that you seem to have found yourself in. I live here now. Have you got like an ensuite bathroom in there? Or... Uh, no, it doesn't smell good. <laughs> well, where are you? I'm actually not going to turn my camera around because, yeah, I'm in my flat in North London. Okay. You're in the theatre again at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I am. So I'm doing a play at the Old Vic. Have you done one there before? The Old Vic? No, I haven't. Old Vic, yeah. Big old barn. Big old barn of a theatre. Does it feel big? You know that feeling when you first go into a theatre, when it's empty, basically, and you look out 
and it feels like it goes on forever and ever and ever, kil- yeah. kil- kilometres to yeah. the back of the wall. And it's kind of like you imagine the people at the top of the balcony with, like, binoculars yeah. and, like, hearing horns. It kind of eventually starts to kind of feel a little bit more intimate. Because yeah. it is a beautifully designed fit. I've always loved watching plays there. Yeah. Do you know what? I knew you were doing it. In my head, you were at the Young Vic, though. Oh, really? I think because of the sort of play it is, I just I set it in there. Because it's a little sort of chamber piece, really, isn't it? It's a brilliant play. Yeah. So I'm doing a play called A Number, which is by Carol Churchill. Yeah. It was written 20 years ago. Yeah. I saw Daniel Craig and Michael Gambon doing it. Exactly. Gambon and Daniel Craig did the original. I think upstairs at the Royal Court, maybe downstairs. I think it was maybe downstairs, yeah. I think maybe it was downstairs. downstairs. And obviously I didn't see it, but... It's a kind of very compact, dense, amazing piece of writing. Ours is about 65 minutes. But I've spoken to Carol a bit about the original production and she said that Gambon, I mean, they were both amazing, but Gambon thought it'd be a great idea to smoke the whole way through. This is before the smoking ban, obviously. And being Michael Gambon, they're real cigarettes. So he'd smoke all the way through to the extent that by the end of the play, the entire right. royal court was kind of like soaked in this like Marlboro. Yeah. He once told me a story because he's a qualified pilot, right? Mm. Qualified pilot and a kind of like notorious prankster. So he, he, I only met him once. He told me a story about how he took his mate up in his plane once and they were flying over Surrey or whatever. And once they reached altitude, he thought it'd be a good idea to fake having a heart attack. So he kind of like started like spluttering and then collapsed onto the, what do you call it, steering wheel, whatever it's called. The plane kind of like immediately like drops into a nosedive. His friend next to him is freaking out. Yeah. Um, and then at the last moment, he kind of pulls it out of out of the dive yeah. and says, all right, it's a laugh, isn't it? <laughs> um, and then he was like, yeah, the guy never spoke to him again, yeah. understandably. Yeah. It's funny that you should be playing this part that Daniel Craig played before he was Bond and now that you've been cast as the next Bond, it's like nobody saw that coming. Are we not allowed to say that yet? I'm pretty sure, like, I didn't realise that Carol Churchill had such a synergy with the Broccolis <laughs> in terms of, like... <laughs> No, I'd almost say if only, but um, no, I don't think me and Daniel's career, I think this might be the end of, um, or maybe like a brief moment where our careers dovetail and then he he goes on to be very rich and famous and I continue to try and tidy up the lower part of my (laughs) round four flat. (laughs) How about you? you Have you ever found yourself in the conversation for... James Bond, have you ever met the Broccolis or...? I never thought... I No, I, no, I never believed I had until I worked with uh, a director recently who had worked with the Broccolis who said, yeah, yeah you were on the list that time. <laughs> I went, what, 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 what time? What are you talking about? He went, yeah, the last time. Must have, I, mean, I suppose he meant... It must have been Daniel Craig. Before that, it was... It must have been. I'd have been a child. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it was quite a long list. And I don't think I was ever... <laughs> I don't think I was ever very near the top of it, but apparently so. Do you ever think about what your life would have been like had you been in Casino Royale? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's probably a bit of a game changer, isn't it? That kind of, uh, that that level of uh, celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You must have had a very similar moment when you got the Doctor Who gig. I mean, a bit. I think it's probably on a different level, but there is that bit where you lose your anonymity, certainly. Did it really feel like before yeah, and after? totally. Yeah, because it's a different scale to anything I'd done before in terms of mm. 
you know, just the kind of general public being aware of you. You can sort of be known in the industry and then there's a whole thing where you're suddenly in people's living rooms and, and they have a kind of ownership of you in a way. Mm. And it's it's a multifaceted experience and lots of it is mm. very nice. And But there are parts of it that are, that you just can't really anticipate what that feels like, I think. What's the kind of um, weirdest manifestation of that? Have you ever found yourself in a kind of like very small kind of Scottish village somewhere where you thought there's no, like they barely have electricity here, let alone like access to terrestrial TV, where you still come across diehard fans waiting for you outside the Nisa local or something? Doctor Who has, you can sort of be anywhere in the world and there's someone. Even if it's, even if the show's not a big deal in that country, you think, oh, this is fine. Mm. No, there's always somebody. <laughs> there's always somebody who's got a DVD <laughs> that they want signing. <laughs> and somebody will just sidle up with Series 2, Volume 3. Yeah. Dressed as a Dalek. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, I'm just not going to complain about that. It's a very privileged place to be. You must get a bit of that now. I mean, you're not quite as anonymous as you once were. Yeah, but, like, I feel quite comfortable at the level that I am at in terms of, like, being able to still, like, sit in a pub and maybe have, like, a couple of people come up to me in a night, in a very, like you say, in a very nice way and a very flattering way and very... And sometimes cool when you're in front of your friends and sometimes really annoying when you're with your girlfriend who's, like, in the middle of an argument with you or something, you know? Um, There's always the right time and the wrong time. i tell you the funniest version of that what happened to me like there was one time when i was in the shop across the road from my flat with my partner and we were like buying like literally like toilet roll or something like that something like kind of grim and someone in the queue for the till was like oh you're that person from whatever oh do you mind if i get a photo i was like yeah yeah great and then she was like okay cool i'm just gonna finish my shopping here but if you wait outside i'll come out in whatever so i was kind of like okay so we went outside. We were waiting outside this shop Brilliant. with the toilet Brilliant. roll. And then someone that knew my partner came up to her and was like, oh, I didn't know you lived around here. What are you doing? <laughs> and we had to be like, oh, we're just, um, we are, uh, we, well, we've done our shopping. We're just waiting for, don't worry, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of just thing. Just waiting so. for a total stranger to come and take a photograph of us. <laughs> Hold my toilet roll. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly flattering and it's like so, so, so wonderful and people, and you know, like 99 times out of 100 is people being like, oh, it meant this to me or I loved it because of this and I've told my grandma about it and blah, blah, blah. It's so wonderful, but it kind of, I feel like sometimes you find yourself in a slightly unnatural uh, position waiting outside your own local off-license with a 12-pack of toilet roll on your arm. Right. Presumably I May Destroy You got the most incredible reactions from people because it felt like something that had never really been on telly before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I May Destroy You was, I mean, it's all very surreal to us. Like, Michaela's like an old friend of mine. I was at drama school for 10 years ago, whatever. And we'd kind of made this show that had its kind of like groundings in real life, whatever, but felt quite... You know, we were very proud of it, but felt quite small. We were on BBC One at like 10.35. We were kind of like astounded by the response to it and how how wide the gamut of people that responded to it mm. were. And also, like, it came out during peak pandemic Yeah, of times, course it did, yeah. Know? So 
so we weren't kind of really out and about talking that we like we weren't doing any press or anything like that we were I think that's why you kind of have people quite feverishly grabbing you. Like, I remember once I was on my bike, I cycled around and someone like jumped out of their taxi and like almost pushed me into a gutter. But it kind of came out in quite a feverish time, just generally for the world, you know, like post George Floyd and COVID and et cetera. Um, I suppose the backbone of what she was chasing with her work therefore resonated all the more brightly. Yeah. Have you got any kind of people that, you're primarily friends with who I suppose like Michael Sheen might be a good example of that someone who you're kind of friends with but like find yourself working with quite a lot well it was the other way around with me and Michael funnily enough really that we've known each other we did like a little bit in a film together a million years ago so we'd met but then we suddenly found ourselves doing good omens together and and Mm. working together every day and then again Covid happened we were all locked in our houses and we ended up cooking up this show Mm. staged that we did from our houses you know mm. and and then from that we, we've just done good omens again so i suppose we've become friends through work rather than the other way around i suppose it must be like really um thrilling when you kind of like hit upon a working relationship with someone because like when you watch stage when you watch good omens you feel like you're watching two people who have been in each other's lives for decades oh well that's right no because we really haven't we've been in each other's lives since uh since the first set of Good Omens, which was, you know, whatever that was, four years ago or something. Yeah, bizarre, bizarre. And then we both had little girls, like, within weeks of each other, and so it, it, there's been a lot that's kind of kept us very kind of bonded, I suppose. Yeah. And then there was something about having stage to do during lockdown that that became very important, to f- be able to kind of keep doing something during that time. Yeah. Especially in that early bit where we all thought, I mean, I don't know what you were doing, I was, I was filming something, we just stopped and got sent home. And then we're yeah. just sitting there going, are we ever going to work again? Is this, can our industry function through this pandemic? How long are we going to be locked in our houses for? All that madness. Yeah. I was doing a play when the pandemic hit and obviously there was right. that moment where the Prime Minister came on TV and was like, I'm not going to shut the theatres, but I'm going to advise people not to go to the right. theatres. Right, right which was the worst kind of death knell. Yes. Dozens of theatres shut down. And yeah. It felt really, really scary in terms of what was going to happen to the theatre yeah. industry. Do you sense that being back on stage now? Does it feel like the audiences are coming to see it with a kind of renewed joy that they're there at all? I think so. I mean, it's obviously still quite a weird moment right now because COVID's there, but it's not there, but it is there, but it's not there. Theatre-going audiences, although many theatres are working hard to diversify and bring younger audiences in as well but like a solid proportion of them are people who would probably be put in the vulnerable category right the thing of theater of being in a room and having a communal experience with strangers be that laughing be that a real silence in the moment of tension the applause at the end or standing up i think we feel it from them and they feel it from us like i'm doing this play of lenny james and he hasn't been on stage for 16 years Whoa! You know, yeah, it's been a hot minute while he's um, yeah while he's been taking down America, but so like he's got this kind of like almost childlike fascination with what that dynamic is and what that experience is, right? And a real gratitude to yeah. it. Like on our first preview, I almost caught him like running out the fire escape before lights went up. You know, so yeah. Has did he have the fear coming back to it after all that time? I mean, I think we all have to fear, but like, yeah, he, sure. yeah, I'm sure he won't mind me saying he did, 
And I find it so surprising because, like, to me, he's a legend of the game. He's done everything there is to do, been in big movies, big TV shows, done plays, etc. How can you have the fear, you know, when you've had all that? But, like, after that amount of time, I think your brain tells you, what if I can't do it anymore? Or if, what, what if I yeah. do it wrong? Or what if I never really could do it? Or yeah. what if things have changed? But Mind you, I get that all, I get that all the time. Yeah. Do you get that? Do you not? Do you struggle? Are you quite calm? I'm actually quite calm once it gets to doing it. My absolute like kryptonite is the rehearsal process. Right. Like without fail, and I don't get it, but without fail, if it's a four week rehearsal in week three, or if it's a six week rehearsal in week five, I will have a nervous breakdown. Oh. And having every single time because i'll be like how does that manifest itself what happens to you it manifests itself with quite a lot of self-loathing quite a lot of um maybe like protest behavior like just that feeling of oh my god it's nearly time and i don't know how to do it i can't do it yet yeah and i can't really see how that's going to change in enough time for me not to be put in front of all those people and make an absolute embarrassment of myself, my family, all the people that are associated with the theatre. It happens every single time. So that's the bit where I really, really struggle. And usually, or like so far, usually, just by virtue of getting through that, it means that the actual thing of like going on the stage is all right. Because I've been through hell. What about you? What are the hardest moments? No, it's... I mean... Because you've done so many plays, right? Did you kind of start off doing plays? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, like touring around Scotland in a van. <laughs> One night stands of the resistible rise of Arturo Ui. That was my first thing. <laughs> Six of us in a van touring around, kind of all playing 14 different characters. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, it still feels like the day job, really. Yeah. Even though I suppose I'm on stage much less now than I'm in front of a camera at the moment anyway. Yeah. But it does still feel like the day job. That That's what you're sort of... But I, yeah, I do... Still get the fear. It varies depending on the production, and but I certainly allow the kind of stuff around it to. I mean, for like Hamlet, for instance, which is probably the, the still the play that I'm most proud to have done, was the one that I probably while I was doing it enjoyed least, mm. just because I felt that the overwhelming sort of expectation of it. Mm. That every night was. I mean, the, before the first preview, I was having a proper panic attack. <laughs> proper really? sort of, I'm climbing out the window and I'm never coming back. Yeah. At what stage in your career was that? Had you done Doctor Who? About? Yeah, I had. Were you about to do it? Were you no, still I was doing sort it? of getting towards the end of doing it. It was in a break. Right. Okay. And so that, I guess that didn't help because Doctor Who has a particular sort of fascination for people and, and attracts a certain level of scrutiny. Yeah. Suddenly going off to do Hamlet in the middle of it was people found kind of oh uh, yeah. intriguing and perhaps slightly peculiar that I would do that even though for me that was a much more logical step than yeah you know because that's sort of what the sort of stuff that I did so to get the chance to go and do Hamlet at the RSC was one of the kind of drama school dreams I suppose yeah but because of all that because of my own expectations and then because of the amount of attention that it got every night was like a mountain I found so that when I got to the end of the run, I remember feeling this incredible weight being lifted off my shoulders. And then the next day going, oh, but that was the best part I'll ever play. (laughs) And now I sort of want to go and do it again. (laughs) How did that hit you, playing that part? Because you were so young and fresh. Yeah. 
You seemed so at home in it. I remember coming to see it and you just seemed so, you know, for all that you were, what were you, 25 or something? 25, yeah. 25. And you just seemed so at home in that part and on that stage and it just felt, it just was like liquid what you were doing with it. It was glorious. I suppose the um, circus around it was similar and different because, like, I think most people's reaction when they heard that I had been cast as Hamlet was, okay, who's that? Right. And what's that going to be like? So it was more, the pressure was more about coming up with something that felt justified even my position being put there which is a very different um challenge i imagine from what you or michael sheen or benedict or kush or whatever face when there's a bunch of people who are coming to be like oh my god i'm so excited wonder what it's going to be like there's a bunch of people who are like oh it's that famous guy i'm gonna try and get a secret video of it (laughs) yeah like benedict struggles with that a lot yeah but also, like, the pressure of, like, go and then prove it to us if you're yeah. so great. Like, what, you, you think you can do that as well? It's a different kind of thing. But um, I think the thing that I kind of struggled with a bit was the kind of fixation on my blackness as, I suppose, like, part of the way it was at least reported in the media was this thing of the first time a black actor had played Hamlet at the RSC as if that was a kind of defining um, element of the reason why it had happened, right. um, why it should happen, in a way that kind of takes it away from what is happening. Yes. You know, so I, I definitely struggled with that. I was quite young and hadn't really had that much experience dealing with being interviewed about things. and mm. But the actual, like, experience of doing it, like you say, it's so hard and so long and so <laughs> tiring. And... <laughs> but just so energising and I feel like my brain capacity swelled by about 50% yeah. in the time that I was doing it and then afterwards completely retracted to like right. a grape, basically. <laughs> I, could basically I could barely like finish a sentence, you know. Right, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you go to, I think you you went to drama school. I went to drama school, yeah. I went to drama school in Glasgow, yeah. In Glasgow, yeah. Do, do you remember the feeling of being in a company for the first time and making theatre and sharing it with an audience for the first time? I was absolutely giddy with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you go through drama school and you kind of assume it's all going to be okay. And then you, as you get towards the end of drama school, you think, maybe I'll be one of the most actors that don't work. So then to just finally leave and get a job. Yeah. I didn't really care what it was, but I was fortunate that it was this great Brecht play and that it was a small little touring company called 784. And we went round in a van, but I was just giddy with it. Just that that being... In those days, you got paid in cash as well. You got a little brown envelope 
on a Thursday, I think it was, with with a roll of cash in it. I think it was 180 quid or something. And that was just untold uh, riches, you know. And to have it in your hand, it felt uh, like you'd really earned it. Because I'd always wanted to be an actor. I never had any other notion of, of anything that I would do. So you spend a lot of time growing up with that thought, not being surrounded by anyone who's ever been an actor or knows how to. And the received wisdom is you're not going to be able to and it's not going to work out and most actors don't work, which is all, of course, true and probable and likely. So to get through drama school, to get out the other end and to be given a brown envelope yeah. with money in it for doing a play, was just, I mean, it was, it was ecstatic. And it wasn't, it got terrible reviews, but I just loved it. <laughs> it did. Do you remember what those first audiences were like? Do you remember being in the wings for the first time? Or To be honest, I think they were quite sparse, <laughs> if I'm absolutely honest with you. Places like the Denny Civic Theatre Dumbarton and then... We went up to Pitlochry and all around Scotland. I guess a lot of the people in the Highlands and Islands didn't necessarily want to see an old Brecht play <laughs> done by a bunch of drama school leavers. They probably had better things to do with their time. So I don't remember ever feeling like the Civic, uh, the Mother, what was the theatre in Motherwell called? That was our opening night yeah. in Motherwell and we hadn't even got through the dress rehearsal. And it was really complicated because we were all playing yeah. 1,400 parts. So there was wigs and things and there were... Ashley Jensen, you know Ashley Jensen? Who's yes, 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 yes. It does all sorts of amazing things. She was in it too. Oh, my God. And she played old Dogbury and young Dogbury <laughs> uh, in a massive fat suit with a bald wig on and young Dogbury was a ventriloquist dummy that she carried around. I mean, this production had some ideas. <laughs> this was a good show. Who would have known that if you had been in a theatre in Motherwell in, let's say, the 90s, you were watching two future, you know, superstars <laughs> and a puppet. <laughs> but one of them was up, up a puppet's arse, exactly. <laughs> and, and, did, and did you always kind of, like, have ambitions to work in England or America? Then I just had an ambition to keep working because I'd kept being told that that was very unlikely and wasn't going to happen. So I just wanted to be able to earn a living at it, to not have to do something else. That was that really yeah. was genuinely my only ambition early on. I suppose, as, you know, as you get to do more stuff, you hope for a progression, I suppose. You want to do parts that are more challenging or, or, or on a slightly more national scale, I guess. So I didn't I always imagine moving to London, but then there came a point where that felt like that's yeah. what I should do. And, and then... You know, the bits and pieces I've done in America has always felt, again, that's all like, well, I'm in Hollywood. This is ridiculous. This is, it's all, but I, I like the fact that it still feels silly and a bit intoxicating at times because, um, I mean, it's still not like working, is it? Like what you're saying about drum school dreams, if you go to a certain type of drum school and do a certain type of training, I went to Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London and at least in the, when I was there in the late 2000s kind of thing, it was a classical training, so you do a lot of Shakespeare, and when people talk about Shakespeare, they look at like those parts like Romeo and Hamlet mm. and mm. Cleopatra and Juliet or whatever. So it definitely occupied a space in my brain where it was like there is something. Also, the legacy, it was Johnny Singer and then you were the last person who had done it at the right. RSC. So I remember watching your Hamlet on DVD Right. <laughs> I was probably one of the people looking for something to get at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and Benedict was about to do it, Andrew Scott was about to do it, Michael had just done it, like Sam Russell Bill, like the kind of like roll call of 
people who have done it kind of says a lot about what it can mean and what can be done with it. But um, I do have to say, like, it is just, like, exquisitely written. Yeah. And the ideas in it are so kind of fundamentally um, questions that are timeless that it's one of those ones where you can quite comfortably be like, ah, there is no way of doing it. There is no, like, right way of doing it. You can really genuinely kind of, like, go and ask questions on a different day and the play will provide you with different answers, which stops it from being boring. It stops it from being, I find, too overwhelming, even. Mm. I found that quite a good crutch, just the fact that the play is written on a foundation of true, true, true humanity. Yeah. What's your key in, though, particularly to Shakespeare? Because obviously there is a language thing, isn't there? There's something your brain has got to mm. or leap mm. to get to the sense of it. Because it reference. doesn't... Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, just let that in. Um, <laughs> do you have a sort of process or do you have a thing? Because you can do it and not everybody can. Even people who've had that training. Because yeah. I, for, uh, listeners may not know, but I first came across you watching casting a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. um, which in the end I never got to be involved in, but I was involved at the start and we were watching all these people, you know, and you taped for... Demetrius. I think you did, did, you did t- tape for Demetrius, didn't you? For, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, there's a bunch of... And when you came on, it was just like, oh, here's someone who can just do it. He can just do it. He's just got a facility for making that language come from his own brain rather than off a page. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know why... I don't know if there's anything you are aware that you do to make that happen or whether you just think you've that's a, a gift you've been given? I don't know. Like, I definitely don't think it's a gift that I've been given because I saw my GCSE grades for <laughs> for English. So, like, right, I, I right. really, really passionately hated Shakespeare, actually. Well, not hated, but just found it, like, um, savagely boring um, when I was at school. Right and couldn't get into it and very much saw it as an academic exercise in a world that was away from mine. But I do remember loving the Baz Luhrmann film. So I remember okay. even as a teenager being feeling quite confused about that, being like, I hate reading it, I hate it on the page, I hate listening to my English teacher talk about it, I hate having to contrast and compare you know, Juliet's journey through the whatever, you know. But I do find the story fascinating. I actually love the kind of, like, poetry and imagery and metaphor in it. I found that, wow, this is so great. And it kind of, like, occupied a similar position in my mind to, like, the music that I listen to or the films that I watch or whatever. But, yeah, I feel like Shakespeare and, you know, the thing about our production of Hamlet, we were really, like preoccupied with this idea of it being a story that should be able to be understood by someone who hasn't got a degree from Cambridge in yeah, you know, yeah. classical, like whatever. We really wanted to make it something that people could key into. And so like we did it again a couple of years later at the Hackney Empire and we had schools from the area and young and youth groups from London who, you know, had never been to theatre before, let alone seen Shakespeare's. And they loved it. They loved it. They loved the story. They could key into the poetry of it and key into, like, I suppose the intention that that Shakespeare has coursing through it. So, like, I think it's a total myth, the idea that it's for some people and not for some people. I don't think Mm. you do necessarily need a training in it. I kind of feel like, yeah, maybe it takes, like, 10 or 15 minutes to kind of get your ear into it. I remember watching your production, Much Do About Nothing, in the West End, with Catherine Tate. 
And I always hated that play. I was always like, it's not funny, it's boring, it's too long. There's this whole side plot that doesn't make any sense, blah, blah, blah. I remember watching that and I was like, wow, like these guys have been brought to work together in a way where they're all singing from the same hymn sheet and they're all turbocharged by uh, a mutual intention that suddenly makes the play like so, so easy to get into. Oh, good, yeah. You know? Yeah. So easy to get into. And I was like, oh, wow, that's shame on me for kind of like coming with my own preconceptions about what plays that people can get and what plays people can't. And I, feel, I, I kind of feel yeah. that about... I mean, what's the point in doing theatre if it's only for a small band of people? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Do you have a final aim? Are you heading somewhere? I mean, after Bond, obviously, because that's the next 10 years of your life sorted. My auntie still is just like, yeah, I mean, it's great, whatever, um, HBO... Uh, A24, whatever, but when are you going to be on EastEnders? Now yes. you probably could get an audition, yeah. right? Yes. Right? You know? So it's like, and again, like, it's it's a real question. When am I going to be on EastEnders? Yeah. Any casting directors that are listening? But it's so easy to get caught up in the fascination of it. Yeah. Um, but it's really important, I think, to to stay grounded and remember the kind of perspective that you had when you first yeah. started. Yes, it's true, actually. Just thinking, just reliving that now, I can really access that joy that I had. And I yeah. think I still do. I don't think I'm... I think I've remained relatively uncynical in a world yeah. of actors who are all desperately cynical human beings a lot of the time. I think I've remained yeah. relatively wide-eyed, but it is worth remembering that. You've played so many, like, leading roles at major theatre companies, at the RSC, at the National Theatre, in the West End. Hamlet aside, have there been any that have particularly stood out for you in terms of how challenging they've been and why, or in terms of how enjoyable they've been, or plays that you thought were going to be absolutely enormous and then ended up being terrible? I've been pretty lucky. Things have gone sort of often gone terribly well, and they and they I have very fond memories of the ones that you never quite get are the ones that rankle a little bit. Like yeah. you were Edmund in King Lear, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I played Edgar. I never got it. It's a bloody hard. hard part. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And I still think back on that and go, why did I, why, would, why couldn't I join the dots on that? Maybe nobody can. Maybe it's just a really hard part. Who was playing Lear in that? Tom production? Courtney. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the Manchester Royal Exchange. So all very intimate in the round. And, wow. That must um, have been incredible. It was good. It was good. And he was, you know, that bit on the beach where he's lost his mind was was just extraordinary. He just had this yeah. this otherworldly quality about him. And at least I got to watch that close up every night. But yeah, that was a difficult part. So that the, the other ones that sort of slightly, you know, we're never bloody satisfied, are we? You kind of think, if only I could have... Really I don't know. There was, always felt like there was a something to unlock there that I just didn't have the right key for or something. Yeah. I don't know. I actually love hearing your voice. I, I, it was one of my favourite things about W1A, hearing the very dry in-between kind of yeah. narrative. And do you feel like you've got something that kind of like drives the decision to do the work that you do? I've seen that you're, I think you're playing, or you have played Litvinenko yeah. Yeah. recently, which obviously right now particularly It's feels become like all the more relevant since we shot it, yeah. There's an increased rate of, have you finished shooting yet? We have, yeah, yeah. Um, but I can't imagine that your kind of politics or your worldview doesn't affect a decision to kind of like be involved in, or is that purely just like curiosity or purely... I suppose, no, I suppose it's true. It doesn't feel like a wildly contentious point of view in the United Kingdom of the 21st century to say that 
Vladimir Putin is a megalomaniacal murderer. That feels like... I don't feel like I'm saying anything particularly controversial there. So it's not difficult from that point of view, politically. I suppose there might be other stories to tell that that might need a bit more of a... You know, you might you might need to take a deep breath. Because currently, was it, I think the interesting thing that's going on in our industry at the moment is that whole thing of lived experience and what one the kind yeah. of parts you should be allowed to play or not yeah. and, and at what point acting is allowed to begin. And, and that's, I think, a really interesting one at the moment when parts come in and you think, well, I don't know if I... Because actually, you know, that this is a very live debate and it's very... It's developing mm. and you want to make sure from a moral point of view that you're on the right side of that whilst at the mm. same time, you know, looking for that new challenge for yourself. So that's something that that I'm yeah. very aware of currently. You know, you just want to get that right, whether it's about sexuality or a religious experience or we, all the things that are currently controversial. It feels a little bit at the moment like you're trying to keep ahead of the next scandal. Does it, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and you just want to be on the right side of it when it lands. Yeah. You're looking at future you thinking, I don't want to be getting grilled on live TV about something that I've done wrong. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I just thought I was, you know, pulling faces and pretending. <laughs> <laughs> but wearing funny clothes and speaking silly voices. But I mean, like, talking of lived experience, you're like, you've played a lot of yeah, real people. Uh, uh, yeah, increasingly recently, yeah. Um, have you got a particular like skill for like mimicry? I don't think I do particularly, no. I mean, unlike someone like Michael Sheen, who's made a positive, you know, he's cornered the market. I always feel like <laughs> if I tell him I'm playing a real person, he sort of looks at me, really? You think you, you think that's <laughs> what you, you can, can do? do I think uh, I think I wasn't available. Um, no, I don't know that I do particularly. But have you got like a process that's different for that kind of challenge than for an invented? Yeah, of? well, it depends what material's available, I suppose, doesn't it? But if there's someone that there is footage of and you can listen to their voice and you can meet people that knew them and, and there's stuff to read. and Yeah, then it's a different process, I suppose. Have you ever done that? Yeah. No, I'm the worst right. mimic in the world. I can't... All my characters really kind of look and sound like me <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to quite a worrying extent. So, like, no, I haven't. But I'd be interested in the parts of that process that are actually way more free mm. than than when something's imaginative and the parts that are that feels slightly more restricted but i kind of feel like yeah having a wealth of like real life experience to draw from in terms of video or whatever can be great and terrible at the same time right? yeah i think that's it and it's trying to find the bit where you get so comfortable with it that it kind of releases you into something rather than all you're thinking about is doing an impression which is rather limiting and and you're you have to sort of figure out when you let yourself off the hook where it's more important to kind of get a truth about something rather than a bit of mimicry right, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think it depends on the story you're telling as well, doesn't it? You know, with Litvinenko, there was a lot of Russian to learn, you know, not all of which you see the funniest thing. And I seem to speak very little Russian compared to the amount of hours I spent <laughs> trying to learn it. But... um you know, the, the, with the, that, really, the responsibility we have there is to tell the story, which is a very, so relevant. So, and, you know, Marina, his wife, is still fighting the fight and she was involved yeah. and you could meet her and you thought, well, this is this is why we're telling this story. So actually, yeah. what we've got to get, we've got to get to the truth of this and whether I 
manage to look like him or manage to sort of, I don't know, move my hands in the right way is much less yeah, relevant sure. to what's important about the story and because it felt so real. You need to do that to draw an audience into the story and then allow the story to independently... Yeah, move. I suppose that's it, Nick. It just still feels so that we're, we kind of are carrying her and her late husband's story with us and that we it feels like such a precious thing to mm. have, to be holding for a while, you know. Mm. What are the things that you've loved the most? What are the things that you've kind of been wary of the most? And what are the things that if you could have done it again, you would have done differently? No fucking idea. I mean, literally, <laughs> not a clue. It all just feels much more random and, and kind of opportunistic and you just shamble from one thing to the next. I don't know. I mean, if there was some great unlocking to be done, you'd, you'd we'd all be, you know, that, yeah. uh, there'd be no... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, it's like, yeah, you're, you're off anyway. You're, you don't need any tips. Because we're all just... People, right? We're all just, you know... <laughs> shuffling along aren't we we're all just trying to keep going and uh, James Corden was quite funny he said he does. He said to me he does, I don't really get um, starstruck with actors anymore because I know that we all go back to our trailer and take a shit in a chemical <laughs> toilet between scenes <laughs> and there is something sort of true about that not that everyone maybe uses the toilet at work for that but um you know, the sort of the chemical toilet yeah, nature yeah. of being an actor, I think, is quite humbling in, in, all, yeah, yeah, in yeah. all the best ways. It kind of takes the bells and whistles off a bit a little bit. I mean. uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, I've had such a great time chatting to you. It's been amazing. Me and too, I'm so, I'm Papa. So, I'm, you so know, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm so thrilled to see you're doing so well. I always knew you would. <laughs> I feel slightly proprietorial. It's got fuck all to do with me. But I always think, oh, yeah. I noticed him. Yeah. I noticed him before everyone else realised how good he was. Well, we sort of got, we, we've got to somehow um, get Russell T. Davis to write another thing for us to do. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then, yeah, kind of like live out the dream that we kind of just about missed out on. Like, whenever just missed out on. We'll do it. We've got to do something. We'll do it, we should do a play together. That's what we should okay. do. I'll get my people to talk to your people. Let's do it. Let's do it. I look forward to it. Thank you, David and Papa. This podcast is raising funds for Acting for Others, which provides both financial and emotional support to theatre workers in times of need through a network of 14 wonderful member charities. This is Ben's story. I was working in London as a jobbing actor. I just never imagined at that time that me, age 25, that I would be someone diagnosed with cancer. I saw my whole life flash before my eyes. When I started the painful and quite frankly really frightening rounds of chemo and surgery, I was terrified by the reality of my desperate financial situation. On top of all of this, being an out of work actor, I couldn't afford to live and pay my bills through my treatment. But all of this changed the moment I was put in touch with Acting For Others. They got me financial support that I so desperately needed. I don't know if I could have done it without them. If you have the means and would like to make a donation to help people like Ben, you can do so via our website, actingforothers.co.uk, or click on the link in the show notes. Any donation, it doesn't matter how small, will make a big difference. For more episodes, please subscribe and download. And while you're there, we'd love you to rate and review us. Thanks for listening.
And thanks to Matt and Scott at Podmonkey for their editing wizardry, the inimitable Dan Gillespie Sells for the music, and Feast for the artwork. The producer was Robert Reese. The executive producer was Kevin Mundai. This has been a Simple Beast production. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.